Would you join me in your copies of God's Word? We'll be in the book of Romans, looking at verses 16 and 17 of the very first chapter. Romans 1, 16 through 17. Would you join me in prayer one more time? Father, what a blessing it is to get to come to you in corporate worship. And to not only get to do so once, but to get to do so twice on your day, this Lord's Day, this Christian Sabbath. Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, as we hear it preached and proclaimed, we pray that you would do what only you can do. That you would grant ears to hear, eyes to see, that you would soften and enable hearts to be able to receive the word as it is preached. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that this would be a time of encouragement, of edification, and even of challenging and correction where need be. Father, I pray for any who might be here this evening who have not yet had their souls lightened by the gospel of Christ. We pray that this would be the hour upon the hearing of your word preached, that you would unite your spirit to it in a mighty and powerful way, and that you would save. Father, we pray that as a result of your word that we hear preached here tonight, Father, that you would be glorified, that your people here in New Covenant would be built up and made strong, ready to do the work of ministry. And that your kingdom would be furthered. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Romans 1, 16 through 17. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is indeed God's holy, sufficient word. Hear it now. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. May God bless the reading of it and the hearing of it this evening. Amen. Now, this is a short passage, so you might just have to take my word for it, but you don't have to. You can Google it when you get home. We have that now, conveniently. But if you were just to take my word for it, you might be tempted to not believe me when I tell you that these two very short verses change the world as we know it. And, and I mean that literally, not as an exaggeration. I, I'm not stretching the truth here. Luther thinks to... These very verses, in fact, specifically verse 17, it was these verses that sparked what we know as the Protestant Reformation, which in fact changed not just the face of the church, but changed the entire world. We are still feeling and seeing the effects of this reverberating 504 years later. It was 504 years ago that God in his providence used this short passage, these just few words, honestly, to change the world and to remove the scales 
off the eyes of the church at large, which had been there for hundreds of years. Today is a special day, especially if you're a good Calvinist, a good Presbyterian. And no, I'm not talking about Halloween. Uh, now look, I don't have too much against Halloween. I, I know some do, but I, you know, I get to, uh, in just a few short years, I get to steal my kids' candy from it. So look, I, I have not really much against it. But today is a special day, one much more special for us as Christians and as Protestants and as Presbyterians uh, than Halloween could ever be. October 31st, every year, marks the anniversary of the day when a monk by the name of Martin Luther, in the boldness given, which can only be given by God's Holy Spirit, marched out of his church, went to the church doors in Wittenberg, and nailed his famous 95 Theses. Now, Luther might have not intended for this to start Reformation, but, the God, in, but God in his providence did what he often does, and he had a different plan in mind. Today, Reformation Day, as we call it, celebrates arguably the greatest work of God's Holy Spirit since the days of the Apostles, since the day that the, the canon of Scripture closed. It was the day that the light of the Gospel broke forth out of the darkness. Whereas the Reformers would make it their battle cry, post tenebrous lux, out of darkness, light. We get a chance to celebrate that every year uh, on October 31st. But before God would use a German monk by the name of Martin Luther to, to do this work, to remove the scales off the eyes of the church, to bring dark, to bring lightness, light where there was dark, God had to do that in the heart and the mind and the soul of Luther first. He had to do it in the heart and the mind and the soul of Luther first. Before God would use Luther to bring about the Reformation, he had to first rid the darkness from Luther himself. And this passage, specifically Romans chapter 1, verse 17, is the verse which did exactly that for this young monk. And so it's today in God's word, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, that we will see, that we will get to dig in deep to simply put the gospel... But more specifically, the gospel, which is responsible in a sense for bringing the gospel to more people than arguably any other passage in human history. It was the gospel here in Romans 1, 16 through 17, which brought salvation through God's providence to Luther and in turn brought salvation to an untold number of thousands, if not tens of thousands of souls throughout the world. And so it's here in God's word, Romans 1, 16 through 17, that we're going to see a couple of aspects of the gospel of Christ. We're going to look at this gospel, how it is powerful. We're going to look at the power of the gospel first. And we're going to look at the righteousness which is revealed through this gospel secondly. And so we're going to look at the power and the righteousness which is revealed by this gospel and so look with me, if you would, at verse 16, where Paul tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this is linked to the passage which came uh, right before it. Uh, I was tempted to include beginning in verse 8, and then I was looking at 
uh, a pastor by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Hopefully you're familiar with uh, and I think there's a reason why he had probably over a dozen sermons uh, just on these few short verses. So all I want to do is just bring to your attention in verse 15. Paul, in these first few verses, is, is introducing himself to the church at Rome that's going to be reading this letter. And he tells them that he's eager. He's eager to come to them. He's eager to come to them to preach the gospel to them. And it's here in verse 16, where we started this evening, that he gives us the reason why. Why is Paul so eager to come to Rome to preach the gospel? Well, he says because he's not ashamed of it. And why is he not ashamed of it? How is it that Paul can be so eager? Think of all that Paul had been through. Shipwrecked, bitten by a viper, beaten, snuck over walls. He lost, if you really think about it, everything he had in his previous life. After all of that that Paul had went through, how could he be eager to go to the capital of the empire to preach the gospel in person? He says he's unashamed of it, specifically because it's powerful. He tells us here in this verse that the gospel is powerful. Powerful enough to save everyone who believes, whether Jew or Greek, whether black or white, whether rich or poor. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The word that Paul uses here for power is where we get our word dynamite. It doesn't get much more powerful than that. He tells us it is an explosive power. It is a mighty power. The power of this gospel which we have right here is explosive. It is mighty to save. As J.J. from the 70s sitcom Good Times would say, it is dynamite. That is the gospel which we have. It is explosive in the hands of anyone who would proclaim it and preach it faithfully. The gospel is the power of God literally that results in salvation. It is effective. It is thorough. It is effectual. It is transformingly powerful. This gospel which is proclaimed and preached. If you look just one book over in his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul refers to the gospel here as the word of the cross, which is the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18. What's neat there is the context that Paul gives immediately following that in verses 23 through 29 makes perfectly clear for us that the power which the gospel possesses lies, and hear me, not in the eloquence of the preacher, not in the learnedness of the one who speaks it forth, not even in the willingness and the reception of the hearer. But it's there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 29, that Paul makes it perfectly clear for us that the power which the gospel possesses lies in its effective work in calling believers to salvation. I was tempted uh, to, to go off on what could have been an easy rabbit trail for a, for a Calvinist like myself, because uh, it's inescapable, this connection Paul has between the power of the gospel to save and God's sovereignty in calling those to himself. The preaching of the gospel through God's word does not simply make salvation possible. Hear me, brothers and sisters, that's not what the text says. It does not simply make salvation a possibility, but rather effectually bring salvation about in those whom God has sovereignly called. 
That's why Paul's not ashamed of it. That is why, as he tells us in verses 15, he is so eager to preach it. Let the beatings come. Let let the reproach come. Paul isn't worried about any of it. He's not worried about himself. He's not worried about his, his wording of it. He's not stressed over any of that. He is eager to preach it. Because Paul believed that the gospel indeed was the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Paul wasn't the only one who believed this. Martin Luther came to believe it as well, even though many, if not most, in his day did not. Luther wrote this in one of his last sermons, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was his very last sermon. uh, Luther was called back to his hometown. He hadn't been home in a long time, and, and as it goes... Uh, Even after not being home for quite some time, he was called back to his hometown to settle a dispute. And so in the midst of that, in the midst of his travels, he came and preached a sermon. And in that, he addressed several problems. Uh, Luther was not scared uh, of squabbles. Luther was not afraid to offend or or to hurt some feelings. Uh, And one of those issues which Luther addressed there in one of his last, if not his very last, sermon was this tendency he saw in his day. Even though it be years after the initial spark of the Reformation, this tendency that he was seeing even in newly converted Protestants to seek powers and wonders outside of these ordinary means of grace. So so here, if you would, what Luther wrote, what he preached. He said, if you do not want God to speak to you every day in your house and in your church, be wise. Look for something else. In Trier is our Lord God's coat. In Aiken are Joseph's britches and our blessed lady's chemists. Go there and squander your money. Buy indulgences in the Pope's second-hand junk. It'd be interesting if he was alive today, Luther, to have a Twitter account. I, I would have followed that in a heartbeat. He continues. He's not done. He wasn't afraid of being canceled. He said, there sits that decoy duck in Rome with his big bag of tricks. He's talking about the Pope. Luring to himself the whole world with its money and goods, and all the while, anybody can go to baptism, the sacrament, and the preaching desk. He's saying the whole while, it's available now. It's available. You can come to these ordinary means of grace freely, openly, day after day, and hear the faithful preaching of God's word. Receive baptism. Receive the Lord's Supper. But the people say, what baptism? The Lord's Supper, God's Word, Joseph's britches, that's what does it. See, in their fleshly thinking, people in Luther's day, even post-Reformation, were traveling all over Europe to find whatever relics they could, whether it be the supposed robe of Jesus, or Joseph's pants, as Luther mentioned, or straw from the crib of baby Jesus, or even as some would claim they had the bones of some of the apostles. And not just rich people, mind you, poor people. People that barely made ends meet were spending days, weeks, months, money that could feed their families and clothe them. Money that could further the proclamation of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. They were spending this and going to all this effort to seek out these relics. This is where the Roman Catholic Church was telling people the power of God was to be found. In things such as Joseph's supposed britches. And we're so quick to ask, how on earth 
Could people believe that and want that? You know, you say pre-Luther, I understand, right? They didn't know better. After Luther, after the Reformation, after the printing press got the gospel spread wide, after they had the word in their own tongue, how could people be so quick to run back to these foolish things? But brothers and sisters, as I said earlier, the Reformation's not over, and I don't think people are that different today. Paul and Luther believed that the gospel was indeed the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Yet many, to, many then and many now do not believe that. There's many today. You may know some. You may have family members who, though they name, claim the name of Christ, they run around seeking after religious experiences, like promises of being slain in the Spirit or of healings. People who have desires to go to services not because they know the word will be faithfully preached. Not because they know that there the sacraments will be faithfully administered. But rather because they seek after light shows or ballet performances or TED talks disguised as sermons. Anything but the gospel preached faithfully through word and sacrament. Many, if not most, of the biggest, most packed out churches are filled with a type of preaching which does nothing more than scratch people exactly where they itch. Then give them what they want to hear that are geared from start to finish to give them exactly the experiences they seek. Even in my undergrad at a Christian college, we had church growth experts come and teach us the 10 steps or the 12 steps. To, if you wanted a, a church packed out, here's what you do. And they would instruct us that if we want to see our churches grow, we must be sensitive, they would say, to what people are wanting. That we have to provide a product which is in demand if we want to get a steady supply of people through the door. But brothers and sisters, none of that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe any more so than Joseph's britches. It is the gospel of God faithfully preached through the word of God, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe nothing more and nothing less. It's here that we see in the gospel the power of God. But Paul isn't done yet. We also see through this gospel, Paul will say, the righteousness of God revealed. And that's our second point we're going to look at tonight. The righteousness of God revealed. The gospel is indeed the power of God for salvation. Why? Paul says it's exactly because it reveals the righteousness of God. Read with me in verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written... The righteous shall live by faith. Now this is an important verse. Not just for Luther, for Paul's entire epistle. This is the hinge on which the door of the book of Romans swings open or shut. This is the thesis statement, if you remember uh, from high school English, right? This is, the, this is the thesis statement. This is the main point that Paul is going to elaborate on for the rest of the letter. It's the thematic verse of the entire book of Romans. 
And if you're like me when you read it and you find all that out, you might want to say, well, Paul, maybe you should have made your main point a little bit easier to understand. (laughs) Because it's not the clearest statement, right? What does it mean when Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed? What does it mean when he says that it is from faith for faith? These questions being hard to answer is why Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, had five or six sermons just on these two verses. I think this is surely one of the places, like what we mentioned a couple weeks ago, that Peter had in mind when he said that much of what Paul had to write was hard to understand. Because if you've ever wondered or are wondering now what Paul is saying and felt that it is somewhat confusing, know that you're not alone. And in fact, that the majority of the church for hundreds of years, and Martin Luther himself was very confused by what this passage had to say. Even today, this is a controversial topic. What is the righteousness of God? What does it mean from faith, for faith? There's entire books written on this. As tricky as it may seem for us today, I understand there was a whole other layer of fogginess on top of it for Luther and men in his day. A whole other layer of difficulty in reading and understanding what it was that Paul meant. Because in Luther's day, it was not in their common tongue that they read and preached and studied. The scriptures were primarily read, studied, and preached in Latin. It didn't matter if you spoke English or French or some variation of Germanic. When you went to Mass, you heard the word in Latin. In fact, many of the priests themselves couldn't read the Greek, couldn't read the Hebrew. And so we get to the problem. The problem that would cause a darkness for so long. The problem that Luther himself had to be, have his eyes opened from. See, the Latin word for justification came from the Roman judicial system. And it was a conglomeration of two words. Justice, spelt J-U-S-T-U-S, but sounds just like ours, self-explanatory. And fakari, which literally means to make. And so the church leaders for some 1,000 years, if not longer, and Luther himself in his day, understood and taught and preached that the doctrine of justification was when God, through the church's sacraments and things such as coming and touching Joseph's britches, that it's when God, through those sacraments, through those things, literally makes people righteous, changing them inside, making them righteous. But thankfully, and we praise God for this, Martin Luther wasn't using the Latin, but the Greek, the original language of the book of Romans was written in. See, Luther wasn't just any monk. Luther was an Augustinian monk who had pursued his doctoral studies in the works of Augustine and was actually teaching his students, lecturing through the book of Romans. And what a mighty awesome thing it is that Luther was converted through his very studies to teach As he was preparing one of his lectures, he came across a simple notation, a note in the margin, so to speak, from Augustine himself, which defined the righteousness of God. Augustine helped Luther to see that the Greek word used here didn't mean to make righteous, as the Latin did, but rather to regard as righteous, 
to count as righteous or to declare one righteous. To declare, to count, to regard, not literally to make. So then Paul is not speaking here of God's righteousness, but rather that righteousness which he provides for his people who have none. And God made in that moment the lights come on for this monk named Martin Luther. Luther referred to this as an alien righteousness. An alien righteousness. A righteousness which you do not properly on your own possess or make or create. It's a righteousness which properly belongs to someone else, namely Christ. But which is by his grace, through faith, regarded to, counted to, declared over you. Namely, this is what Paul specifically is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul is saying exactly this, that God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Or in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, when Paul writes that if we are found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, that is, I'm found in him not because I did these works, not because I kept the Mosaic code, not because I did this or did that or came from this specific bloodline or any of that. If we are found in him, it's not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, which comes from obedience, which comes from this or that doings and strivings, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This righteousness of God here refers to the believer's status before God. It is not as Rome or the Pope would have understood it to be the infusion of righteousness, but rather a declaration of it. It's a forensic term. It, it, it's a legal term in a real sense. I think we spoke on this actually a little bit a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 5. It's, it's a courtroom setting. You did the deed, brother. Sister, you, you are guilty. That's not undone. It's not as though God, as some unjust judge who would accept a bribe, looks over your sin or pretends it didn't happen. You who stood guilty before the Almighty Creator through faith and faith alone in Christ by the grace of God and nothing more, nothing less, Christ now takes the punishment that you deserved. And so though sinner you still be, though unrighteousness you still have, as Paul says, though that man of sin still clings so closely, when God looks at you, He sees nothing more and nothing less than the righteousness of Christ himself. This is what Paul is writing here. He's speaking of this alien righteousness. And this was immense for Luther. This was a game changer. He had studied law. In fact, he had set out originally to to work in law. And he had previously hated this term righteousness. Luther, as a monk, would have been in the eyes of his fellow man, much better than those around him. He didn't live a scandalous life. He didn't have 
you know, many open sins that others could see by an outward eye looking in, we would probably account him as an upstanding Christian man. Yet Luther in his heart and in secret lamented constantly. He had sleepless nights, had crippling anxiety and stress over this term righteousness. He writes that every time he encountered this word righteousness, he began to even get angry with God. For all he saw in it was a standard which he could never achieve. The righteousness of God, Luther would write, holy and perfect, unreachable, unattainable. Luther rightly recognized that no matter how much he believed, no matter how many relics he touched, no matter how many steps he walked up, no matter how many sacraments he achieved and, and went through, no matter how much prayer, no matter how much reading, memorizing, teaching, there was no amount of good deeds or strivings that he could do to attain his standard, and it made him angry with God. He had this thought that consumed him. How could God expect something of him which was impossible? He began to have a hatred over God's standards, over this wrong assumption of what the word here meant. And so for him, when God turned on the light to realize that it was not speaking of an unachievable standard, that it was not speaking of something which Luther had to achieve on his own, but was instead the polar opposite, that which God freely gives, that which God freely through the blood of Christ, through his grace and mercy alone, declares over sinners like you and me and Luther, counts to, regards to, it was a game changer. Luther said it was in that moment that he felt like the door swung wide open. I don't think Luther's alone in this. Consider today, how many family members, friends, co-workers have you labored over the gospel with, who come back to you with some version or another of saying, I'll give you one example, I'll come to church when I get my life together. Or, I'll start doing that Christian thing, but I've got to get my act together a little bit better. Consider how many people today go through life trying, trying, trying to be good enough desperately in the hopes that at the end, their goods may outweigh their bad by enough to get through the pearly gates. I don't think Luther's alone in this stress and anxiety, this worry, this fear of an unattainable standard. My hope would be that today, as much as it was for Luther 504 some years ago, that this gospel that Christ saves, that God saves through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that he gives this righteousness, this righteousness achieved by Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, that he gives it through him and him alone. I pray, brothers and sisters, that we would be a people here at New Covenant, that with our family members and our friends, our co-workers and classmates, that we would be about shining this light on that darkness and confusion. For believers, I hope that this gives you an encouragement. That if this righteousness was not earned by you, it cannot be lost by you. That if this righteousness was given to you through and by Christ, how can it be lost? Consider, brothers and sisters, that whether a good day or a bad, 
whether it's when you find yourself buried in the scriptures, memorizing your catechisms, faithfully proclaiming the gospel, as bold as Luther himself, or when it be on the days that you can't even get your feet on the ground out of bed without sinning in thought, deed, and action, that if you are found in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Can the righteousness of Christ be added to? No. Can the righteousness of Christ be taken away from? No. Then rejoice, brothers and sisters. It's this righteousness which you possess. It's why Paul says that it's from faith for faith. Or to word this another way, it begins and ends in faith. As we're told in Hebrews, it's Christ who is the author and the perfecter, the starter and the finisher of this race. It's as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, beginning in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Conclusion, hear what Luther wrote about this text and the impact on his life. Luther said, when I discovered that, that is, this alien righteousness, what it really meant, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. And indeed he did. He walked straight across town to the church doors at Wittenberg and nailed those 95 theses. And though reformation might not have been his intended goal and purpose, God did it through him. God used him and God used this gospel. God used this message in Romans 1.17. This beautiful message of salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. According to the word of God alone. All to the glory of God alone. For the furtherance of his kingdom. For the salvation of the lost. The Reformation may have been started over 500 years ago. But I hope you know, brothers and sisters, that it's far from over. I don't think we have to leave our city limits here to see that. You turn on the news, you see that. You listen to any one of the famous TV preachers and hopefully you see that. The Reformation is not over. And so my prayer, brothers and sisters, is that the Lord again would do a mighty work. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the word alone, that this good news would spread like a wildfire. Because remember, brothers and sisters, it is the power, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is? It wasn't Luther. It wasn't his eloquence or lack thereof it. It wasn't his wording any more than it is any other preachers or Christians. Whether it's you speaking with your family over a dinner or talking with a classmate or talking to a stranger on an aisle in the grocery store. Have confidence in this, brothers and sisters, that it is the gospel, it is the word of God which has this power to save. Praise be to God. Would you join me now as we pray that he would do again what he started 500 years ago. Father, you are good. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are mighty to save. 
Father, I pray that for myself and for my brothers and sisters gathered here tonight, Lord, that you would do a few things. That you would help us to never grow tired in our own lives of hearing this beautiful gospel. That you would help us to never grow weary as Luther noticed in the lives of people in his own day of the ordinary means of grace. Father, help us to be a people, help us to be a church who shun, who put aside, who reject flash and glamour and the sinful inventions and ingenuity of man. Help us instead to be a people who trust and know from start to finish that your word, that your gospel is enough. That it is the power of God to save all who believe, whether Jew or Greek, black or white, rich or poor. We pray that you would do all this to the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.